and welcome to the Body of Water podcast. Today, we are continuing with part two of the three-part series with David Hart centered around the history of Canadian water polo. Now, in the second book, you open with a rather significant development to the game, that being the dry pass. Could you tell us the ways in which this changed the game? Yeah, uh, so prior to, it was a... a very famous Hungarian uh, guy, Komyadi. Uh, there's a beautiful pool named after him uh, in Budapest. You've probably been there and coached uh, games in that facility. Uh, he's a legend in the Hungarian water polo uh, and the world uh, community. Um, the Hungarians started getting up up until the 1920s. Uh, the game was dominated by by England. France, Belgium, and Germany. Those were the, the dominant uh, nations uh, competing at the international level. And if you look at who's winning the Olympic medals up to that point, um, it's pretty much them. But then in the middle, in the 1920s, and uh, Komyadi develops this idea uh, of the dry pass in honor around 1928. And whereas the game would have looked very much like a rugby game uh, where, you know, there was passing, but was, uh, you know, just throwing the ball in the water somewhere near uh, one of the teammates. Uh, and um, uh, the game all of a sudden dramatically had this change. And this is how the Hungarians kind of took over the game is that they came up with this idea that, through quick movements, uh, swimming movements, in combination with passes from hand to hand, they could outmaneuver their opponents, uh, and uh, and the the world found themselves behind the Hungarians suddenly. They 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 revolutionized the game, and and the game became this beautiful, more beautiful uh, passing game, uh, with less emphasis on. Uh, holding, wrestling, and, 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 and more emphasis on combinations between a passer and a receiver. So this is how the game really got shaken up in the uh, late 20s. And then you can see how it starts to, the game really starts to become a quicker, uh, more, uh, looking more, more and more like a, a kind of a hybrid between basketball and, and, and soccer, you know, as opposed to a rugby game. Yeah, which which is very close to what we kind of see today with a lot of dry passes and a combination of the two. So obviously we're seeing kind of the even more of the roots that we see in today's game. Yeah, there was a real there's always been this struggle because of the water. It's such a difficult environment to, to uh, you know, to have a, a, a team sport uh, involved because it's, the water slows everything down. It's not like the ice hockey where you see the, how quick, I mean, the movements are very quick, right? So um, there's always been this struggle within water polo and there's always been pressure from the International Olympic Committee. A lot of the article, even back in those days, there were threat threats from the IOC to kick water polo uh, out of the Olympic movement as, as early as the, the late twenties, early thirties, because the game was, there was so much controversy in the, uh, the brutality of the game and, and the, the conflicts uh, of uh, referees trying to interpret who was fouling who a little bit, sounds a little bit like the game today. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. 
Yeah, the the game in my in my view, the game has, has unfortunately has a little bit after this initial flourish of more you know um, exciting movement. There's really less movement in the game today than there was in the, sort of that middle period in the uh, you know uh, late 50s, early 60s, early 70s. There was a period of time there where there, there was a lot more a lot more movement. Um, one of the interesting things, Andrew, is that. Um, there was an early rule uh, that held sway in water polo whereby when the referee whistled, all the players in the water had to freeze and stop where they were. So no one was allowed to continue moving and finding a new position in the water until the ball left the hand of the player taking the free throw. So the game for a good period of time with this combat, just imagine now how what the game looks like. There's yeah. a there's activity. Guys got the ball. One team's moving down the pool. They're getting ready to attack, and there's a foul. Now suddenly everyone's frozen. And if one player up the pool, maybe against his opponent, has through quick swimming established a an advantageous position. Because the rule now says no one can move until that ball is thrown, there's an opportunity for a beautiful pass and a potential deflection, catch and sudden shot. So you can, you can see how the tactics with this dry pass, along with that rule, really favored beautiful combination and passing play. Because any advantage you had gained was held until that free throw was taken. So that's kind of how the game made its next jump was, was through that combination of the players having to stay still until the free throw was taken. And then the invention of the dry pass. And even, you know, all of the players having to stay still uh, when there's a foul is, is a crazy proposition to those of us who, who watch the game today, right? Because even, you know, the tacticians, a lot of the time, if you're performing a foul or you're trying to get a foul when you're in defense, it's actually to allow your defense to, to, you know, correct its position or make up on an advantage or whatever it might be. So, so the tactics obviously have evolved tremendously over the years, but it's still interesting to see our evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, it was um, Argentinian water polo, that 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 revolutionized the game in the late 50s they they as early as about 1955 the argentinian federation started experimenting with rules in the south american championships pushing this idea that uh with a free throw players could continue moving they were trying to uh, speed up the game even further than what had been done with the invention of the of the uh, dry pass. So FINA initially was resistant, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, but they saw the advantage of, of how this was going to move the game, and this was going to help them uh, uh, deflect some of the negative criticism of the IOC against the sport being too rough and too too much uh, too much violence. So this idea that players could continue to move uh, even during that so-called dead time uh, after the award of a free throw uh, gave advantage to mobility, more swimming, more speed, more agility. 
So it was a really uh, great innovation that brought uh, a water polo even another step further to moving it into a more fast-paced, exciting uh, spectator sport. Which are conversations that are still happening today. You know, there's a lot of people that love water polo as it is, but even the biggest fans can admit that it's not always the best suited sport for the uh, average non-educated spectator. So, so we're always looking for ways to kind of speed up the sport and add more dynamic levels to it. You know, it sounds like these conversations are, are always ongoing within our sport. Yeah, it has been. It's all when you look. When I was doing the research for the book, it's just a constant, constant conversation um, about changing the rules. Like, for example, Canada had its own, uh, even though there was a general agreement on uh, a majority of the so-called British or international rules. Even during the night between 1900, let's say, and, and 1920, Canada was had one foot in the American style and one foot in the British. Uh, uh, for example, the net size in Canada was six and a half feet wide. No, six, sorry, six feet wide by yep. two and a half feet high. Whereas the international net was 10 feet wide by three feet high. Oh, wow. Yeah, Quite so it's dramatic, a huge difference. Yep. And the, the size of the ball, the Canadian ball in the early 1900s was a, almost like a six inch in diameter ball. So it's, it's almost it's just like a, a large softball, right? Yep. It's, it, it's that size. So uh, it wasn't until uh, around the 1920 Olympic Games uh, in Antwerp that Canada finally decided to move to the 10 foot the 10 foot uh, wide net. In fact, in Montreal for one year, there was a split in the Montreal water polo community where two rival leagues formed themselves. One, oh, wow. formed, it, one formed themselves around the international rules yep. and the other one formed themselves around the Canadian rules. And then they played for the golden cup and they argued about which were, they were going to play whether they were going to play one game in the Canadian and one in the international. So there was a real internal argument and debate within the Canadian water polo community until eventually the, the, the consensus was that, that we needed to move in the direction of the international rules completely. Oh, wow. That, yeah. This is such fascinating history about the sport. Obviously all of this is kind of listed in the two volumes that are currently released. And then the third one that is yet to come. Now, if we're going to jump back to kind of the history of water polo in Canada, in the second edition, you talk a lot about the different dynasties that presented themselves in the water polo community over the decades. Could you tell us about some of those? Sure. So uh, the very first dynasty in the 1930s is the YMHA, the Young Men's Hebrew Association uh, Club in Montreal, they first appeared on the scene. Actually, they, 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 in my first volume, they appear around, on or around 1927. And then what the, the people inside the YMHA, they, of course, they were involved in a whole bunch of sports. Uh, but in the case of water polo, they had their own, they, they, they had their own facility by then. They had built their own swimming pool. Yep. And what, what they did was they built a big league internal YMHA league infrastructure where they had uh, two or 300 people playing water polo in a kind of a house league. Yep. 
And then from there, that's how they built their, their competitive team. So by 1930, the YMHA kind of takes over the Golden Cup. They dominate the Golden Cup championship uh, almost exclusively uh, during the 1930s. Oh, wow. So now, very interesting that they also set their sights on the international uh, scene. And they, they were going to take a team to the Berlin Games in 1936. So, uh, but for world events, Canada's debut at the Olympic Games would not have been 1972, as it, as it turned out, yep. uh, would have been 1936. But the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany in, in, in uh, that time, in 19, when they were the host of Berlin hosted the 1936 Olympic Games, the uh, YMHA team, who were the Canadian champions and had the right to go to that uh, and had the sanction of the Canadian Amateur Swimming Association to go to that, decided that the, it was too dangerous to go to Germany in, in Berlin in 1936. And so they, they withdrew. Uh, which was real a real tragedy because I've always maintained that Canada's insularity, uh, the the fact that we d uh, we were under the umbrella of the Canadian Amateur Swimming Association, and we were therefore blocked. We weren't our own organization, and we mm -hmm. had to get permission from the Canadian Amateur Swimming Association to go to these Olympic Games. And by not going outside. And bringing back that that knowledge and expertise and exposure, we can we 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 remained in a little bit this cocoon uh, and this insular uh, way of seeing the game. The only other the only other way we we broadened our horizons was through our interactions in the in the twenties and the thirties and so on and forties and fifties when we were playing against the New York Athletic Club, the Chicago, uh, St. Louis, uh, and in the case of out West, you know, Vancouver and uh, Victoria uh, in being involved in a sort of a Pacific Northwest League. So this, the very first dynasty then was the YMHA team. An interesting thing happened uh, in 1930. Uh, a gentleman uh, named M.M. Uh, Robinson in Burlington, Ontario, pushed the uh, uh, Hamilton uh, community to launch and propose the kickoff for the British Empire Games, which we commonly uh, know now as the Commonwealth Games. Yep. Hamilton agreed. We ended up hosting uh, the 1930 British Empire Games, and they built one of the premier pools and it's still it's still in existence today I'll, I'll i'll speak i have a very personal story also about that pool but i'll i'll stick with the second dynasty in that in that with with this pool in hamilton uh it was a, a beautiful 25 yard eight lane uh pool which had a seating capacity of about 1200 people but it was, it was like a, a Roman amphitheater. It was completely 360. Uh, and there you were like almost right on top of the pool. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Like an arena, right? It was like an arena. Yeah. Just picture, uh, picture an arena uh, where, you know, everybody's like almost on top of, uh, on top of this facility. So this pool gets built in Hamilton. And then they bring this guy named Jimmy Thompson, who was a 1928 
uh, bronze medalist in the the four uh, by 100 uh, relay Canadian relay uh, in Amsterdam. Um, he they steal him from uh, Toronto. Uh, a group of sports-minded people uh, steal Jimmy from uh, Toronto, the Toronto Swimming Club, and they put him in charge of uh, uh, training swimming in the city of Hamilton. And within eight years, he's built he's built a dynasty, the second and and one of the most significant. Uh, water polo dynasties in the history of Canadian water polo. They 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 kick off the Hamilton Aquatic Club in 1932. They kick off a, a, a city high school league in 1932, which is the oldest continuously running high school water polo league in Canada. It's getting close to its you know another another 10 years it'll hit its hundredth hundredth anniversary. Um, so this Hamilton wave. Uh, occurs uh, in uh, by by 1939. Now, unfortunately, the wave gets interrupted because of the Second World War, uh, and there are no uh, competitions held uh, between basically between 1940 and 1946 at uh, the conclusion of the war. Uh, but Hamilton pretty much takes over uh, and runs through the late 30s, pretty much the entire 40s the 1950s until another world event occurs. The third dynasty in my volume two occurs uh, uh, around the uh, 1956 Olympics in Melbourne when the Soviet Union invades uh, Hungary to crush a student rebellion. Uh, that And this kind of coincides at the same time that the Olympic games are going on in Melbourne we have the famous blood blood match between uh, Hungary and the Soviet Union, uh, in which Hungary uh, wins the gold medal uh, for, for in the water polo. But then, what happens immediately following the Melbourne Olympics? Athletes from all sports uh, defect. Mm -hmm. They're they're they don't go home to their home country because it's now under the Soviet regime. Thousands upon thousands of people are trying to escape from Hungary. And what happens is there's an influx of Hungarians all over the world. It so happens that in Toronto, there's a big influx of Hungarians, as there are in other cities. But in particular, there are some pretty amazing water polo players that end up in Toronto. Robert Antal, 1952 uh, Olympic goalie for uh, gold medalist for Hungary ends up in Toronto as, uh, as do uh, several other uh, formidable first division water polo players. And they formed the Toronto Hungarian water polo club in 1958, at which time there's a, uh, no longer just a now a Hamilton versus uh, uh, Montreal rivalry, uh, you know, be prior to Hamilton's arrival, it was pretty much Montreal only. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but now we've got a third, a third uh, team in the works, and the Toronto Hungarians go on to to dominate the Canadian water polo scene, winning uh, the Golden Cup from 1958 to 1964. They also kick off. Uh, they win the American Championship. No, I, there's been nobody that's won both a Canadian title and an American title other than the Toronto Hungarians. They're the only, only team that ever did that achievement. Uh, and then they kicked off through their leadership. They kicked off the North American cup. 
which gets started in uh, 5859. And this is, uh, th that pretty much runs right through until, you know, uh, pretty much the 1980s, uh, this, this idea of a North American championship. And it was the Toronto Hungarians that kind of kicked that, that kicked that whole thing off. So those are the three dynasties, the YMHA in Montreal, the Hamilton Aquatic Club, and then the Toronto Hungarians. Which is pretty outstanding, you know, and you think about the influence that the Hungarians must have had, you know, on water polo all over the world after those 1956 games too. Uh, and when we, you see such a present that existed within our country and there were a dynasty of competition, but did they also have an impact on the sport itself, like how it was played in Canada? Totally. It, 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 this, this really shook up, uh, shook things up because they brought a level of, uh, as you know, uh, Andrew, you've worked, you've worked internationally a lot. So, you know, you, you, you know, very well how the Hungarians, um, incredible ball handling skills, beautiful playmaking, uh, you know, so this is what the Toronto Hungarians brought the, the types of games that were being played um, in, between Hamilton and Montreal and so on were more, you know, uh, speed, quick swimming, but a yep. lot of physicality, very rough games. Have you, any, you read any, any of the newspaper uh, articles that cover the games between, uh, you know, for the Golden Cup championships or later on when the, when the Hershorn Cup um, gets launched uh, for uh, actually Hershorn donates two trophies, one for the junior Canadian men, uh, men's championship uh, starting in uh, 1920. Uh, uh, the, the university cup story gets started in 20 and then in 1930, the, the junior men's trophy gets, gets kicked off in the 2930 uh, period. Um, but the games were mostly um, tough, quick swimming, but the ball skills were not that's not at the standard of the international game. And this, the Hungarians really shook, shook the, 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 you know, the rafters of the Canadian water polo scene and showed that there was another way and another way to prepare for training and, and tactics and so on and so forth. So this had a huge impact um, on the game as we get into, now we're moving into the 1960s a little bit. And that group of Hungarians a couple of key people, Eddie Sakac, who ends up becoming the very first men's national coach. He coaches the team that goes to the uh, Pan American Games in Sao Paulo, Brazil in 1963. So that's, that's, that's Canada's first ever national team occurred in 1963. Eddie yep. Sakac played uh, and play, sort of played coached on that team. And then he coached the team at the Pan Am Games in 67. And then another Hungarian uh, who escaped as a butterflyer. Uh, he swam the hunter fly for Hungary in 56. A guy named Gino Atz uh, is uh, a catalyst for uh, this move into what I would call the modern age of Canadian water polo, which uh, that transition occurs around 67, 68. Incredible. It's of no surprise to those of us who are great fans of this sport that the Hungarian Revolution and the subsequent mass emigration after the 1956 Olympic Games has had a massive impact on not only water polo in Canada, but, but obviously around the world. Now with that, we'll put a wrap on the second part of this three-part series. Join us next week for the final installment of the History of Canadian Water Polo Conversations with Mr. David Hart on the Body of Water podcast. 